Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This is The Guardian. I think most Australians want the same thing. Some of us are voting no for the same reasons that some of us are voting yes. And as I said this morning, I'm sad and concerned for the prospect of reconciliation. Hello, lovely people of pods. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy. I'm political editor of Guardian Australia. And my guest this week in the studio in Canberra is the deputy Liberal leader, Susan Lee. There's a bunch of stuff I want to get through in this chat, so I'm not going to bog us down with too much preamble to start. I'll just say, Susan, welcome to the show. It's good to join you, Catherine, and all of your listeners. I'm keen in this conversation to delve down substantially into where the coalition's heading in the as we're leading up to the election. But as anyone listening to the show knows, the voice to Parliament has completely dominated this last sitting week of Parliament. There's a reason for that. It was the last sitting week of Parliament before the referendum on the 14th of October. Just for disclosure, we're recording on Thursday evening. I listened earlier today to your colleague Jacinta Price at the National Press Club. Her speech was very interesting. Um, Clearly, she's sort of got a post racial, post-colonial view of Australia. She said colonialism had no ongoing impact on Indigenous people in this country. Now, I listen with interest because other Indigenous people speak often about the racism that they encounter in their everyday life. They don't feel as though, you know, Australia is either post-colonial or post-racial. A lot of that stuff feels very present. Now, Marcia Langton has made some commentary this week about racism. Racism in the messaging of the No campaign also comments that bobbed up in which she expressed views about racism more generally among voters and in the coalition's base. You've been very critical of Marcia Langton in a number of outings this week. Now, I don't want to really relitigate what she said. I actually want to ask a bigger question because we try and do that on this podcast because I've thought about this a lot myself this week. So obviously Jacinta Price has one view about racism and lived experience of racism. Marcia Langton has another view about lived experience of racism. Now, Susan, you and I are white women who occupy positions of privilege and power in our respective spheres. What gives you or me or any other white person the right to chastise or admonish an Indigenous woman for speaking about her own lived experience of racism? 
it's not personal, Catherine, and I don't take aim at any personality and I look past the labels. I wasn't, no, no, no. To be clear, I wasn't suggesting you were being personal. I'm asking you because you are an independently minded, reflective person. Mm. I'm asking you a bigger question. I wouldn't discount the lived experience of anyone, particularly the lived experience of our first Australians, many whom I've met both in my own electorate and in my previous roles as health minister and environment minister, some of the greatest privileges of this job have been, for example, sitting down with the traditional owners of Kakadu National Park and Uluru Katajuta, some of whom English was not their second language, Hmm. and knowing the wisdom with which they spoke, but also as the country's environment minister, taking my instructions from them. When I heard what Marsha Langton said, I was incredibly disappointed, but I was also offended on behalf of so many people that I know are going to vote no, and I was not happy with the Prime Minister's responses that effectively, even today, while I did note that they toned it down, were admonishing Australians if they wanted to genuinely vote no, and I felt that by saying, as Marsha Langton clearly has, that one in five Australians are spewing racism, and there are other quotes, and I don't want to repeat them. I don't really like using that terminology. You and I would agree on that. But we have to call it out for what it is, and it's not right, and it is divisive. And unfortunately, it's saying there are people who are taking perhaps what might be described as the high moral ground on this issue and saying that if you're not up here with us, then you are racist or at the heart of your arguments lives racism. And that's unfortunate. So, of course, we've got to call that out. But But also, um, Marcia Langton has a right to call out the racism that she experiences as an Indigenous woman. Of course she does. Of course she does. And everyone everywhere has that right. And I would never cut across anyone's personal lived experience, but that's not what she was saying. Well, she may well have talked about that, and I'm sure she has in the past. What she was saying was that at the heart of the arguments of the no campaign, that the no campaign is both racist and stupid at the heart of its arguments. And then she went further with previously released or not released remarks that said that one in five Australians are spewing racism. And I I just can't accept that because when I go into my community now, and I'm really looking forward to four weeks away from the building, connecting with real people, they have real questions. They have real questions about what this referendum means. And they want the same thing that I do. I think most Australians want the same thing. Some of us are voting no for the same reasons that some of us are voting yes. And as I said this morning, in the same context of my remarks about Marsha Langton and indeed Thomas Mayo, who we don't need to raise, but clearly has made similarly inflammatory remarks, I'm sad and concerned for the prospect of reconciliation. But it's not, uh, it's not in, well, look, uh, let me put it to you this way, and I don't want to spend the entire conversation on this issue. There's a trap when people of colour talk about racism. There's a trap. When they talk about racism, their lived experience of racism in, now, I mean, obviously some of these comments are being ventilated in the context of the voice, right? We can't disassociate them. But when people of colour talk about racism, (laughs) their lived experience is weaponised against them. Stereotypes emerge, new stereotypes. Someone is an irrational, angry black woman. 
or someone is an angry black man. And the, the conversation becomes entirely circular. If, there's, if there is not permission, if there is not a certain permission granted for people of colour to express their own lived experience, do you disagree? I broadly understand what you're saying, but I don't see that it maps across to the remarks that Marsha made either recently or in the past. I really don't think it does because she's not talking about herself exclusively. She's actually talking about Australians and she's talking, Catherine, she's talking about the no campaign. And I also want to make the point to your listeners that the Liberal Party is not the no campaign and we, we are as individuals, entitled to vote no, and it's okay to vote yes. So the no campaign needs to answer some of the questions about racist comments, Mm. and I've called them out only this week, and I'm not going to repeat them because we don't need to hear them, but I'm happy to answer questions about them. I've called them out wherever and however I've heard them or seen them, and I've done that quietly in conversations. But I come back to this. I'm having a lot of conversations with people that I represent. Remember, we're all local members here. We represent our own communities. My communities aren't racist. They're not even in the slightest hinting that there is something in the terminology that you've described that takes on the colour and flavour of this debate. There really isn't. They actually want details. And I think Australians deserve explanations, not insults. They've been getting a fair few insults from this Prime Minister. They don't need lectures. They need genuine answers. And I think that's why the referendum is going so badly for the yes case. I don't take pleasure in that. What I would have liked to see is the Prime Minister say, what can we all agree on? Because we want constitutional recognition of our first Australians. Why don't we start with that? Why don't we agree on that? It's rushed. It's his timeline. It's not a timeline that suits the Australian people. But again, you've said to me, Susan, the Prime Minister hasn't stopped and said, what can we we all agree on? Now, The proposal for the voice for a constitutionally enshrined voice emerged from a dialogue among Indigenous people. They brought that to the Parliament, to you guys, to Labor. It sort of troubles me that we we go back into this zone of saying, what can we all agree on? It's obviously we all have to agree as a country because we will vote in a referendum and there will be a result and obviously that result will be respected. But it's sort of, again, we're policing. Again, we are imposing something on this debate which says, yes, okay, it's fine for 250 Indigenous leaders to sit around, come up with a proposal that they negotiate through the dialogues leading up to the Uluru Statement, but we, the white majority in this country, as represented still in this parliament, will determine what we can all agree on. Do you see that that's problematic? Well, it's what we can all agree on with respect to constitutional reform, because that's what a referendum is about. And if it fails, then you've got nowhere and you've arguably gone backwards. What can we all do is a separate question. What we are doing and what we should be doing more of is a separate question. But in terms of the group that came together with the Uluru Statement, not every Aboriginal person or community in this country agrees with what that contains. Now, we in government spend a lot of time on local and regional voices, I think over $40 million. And I was quite interested and involved in how that played out in communities that I was close to, that I'd learnt much about during my time as both environment minister and health minister. And what I learnt was there were so many different views that really needed to be heard that the single 
top line sitting at the top of national government voice model would not actually address properly. And now when I talk to Indigenous communities that I know well, they want that local flavour. And they're increasingly both curious and concerned about what the voice model will do for them. But like every Australian, they've got questions and those questions aren't being answered. But again, in that sort of vein, you know, what you're saying, not all Indigenous people support the voice. That's absolutely demonstrably true. Not not all Indigenous people in the country support the voice. But in this country, in politics, we have a mechanism for deliberating and coming up with a result. You're in this parliament. I watch this parliament every day of the week. This parliament doesn't agree on all kinds of things, but at the end of the day, a resolution emerges and that resolution is legislated. And the floor of the parliament is the best place for that to take place. So if the voice is legislated, if local and regional voices are reflected, if we all come together and have that conversation, then we actually can get to a place where we help Indigenous people more than we already are in terms of policies and programs. So we've never shied away from parliament being a good place to have that discussion. Not at all. We're talking about the enshrining of the voice in the constitution and the effect that that will have on reconciliation in this country if it fails at a referendum. Oh, I think we I think we may have been slightly at cross purposes there. The point I was making was that there is always debate. The Uluru dialogues were a sort of model of representation. Not everyone's going to agree with it. Same in the parliament. Not everybody agrees on every proposition that hits the floor of the parliament, but at the end of the day, things emerge and we all, you know, we agree with them, we disagree with them, whatever. It's sort of not... Anyway, I'm just making a point that the standard that's applied for, you know, Indigenous people, every Indigenous person in the country has to agree with this proposition in order for it to have validity. I think that's a higher standard that's imposed on this issue than we impose on the parliament. That sounds quite theoretical to me and I'm not I'm not <laughs> stepping back from the importance of and the significance of all of these things. But what I am saying, and those who tuned into Jacinta's address at the press club where she expressed the frustration I've heard her talk about many times, yeah. that in the communities that she spent so much time in, things are not changing, that the accountability of Aboriginal organisations is not strong, yep. that money is not helping where it needs to. And I've seen that. And... I know that we can do better now. We could be doing that now, but all of the efforts of this government and this parliament are based on, are, are heading towards this concept. Whereas somebody who's practical, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a person who comes from rural Australia. I've worked in manual trades. I'm a practical person. You fly a plane. I want to see, I want to see <laughs> results. Yeah. And I know because I sat at the table with so many wonderful Indigenous people as as the country's health minister and environment minister, things we started then, I'm not going to go into all the details of what they were, but there were improvements made. There was accountability in place. There were significant things too, um, like handing back huge parts of Kakadu to traditional owners, making sure Ranger Uranium Mine paid its fair share, recognising always that link between our landscapes and our first Australians. And making sure that we engaged, for example, the Indigenous rangers in a way that lifted them from perhaps a time of distress and hopelessness. All of these things are happening. Well, they should be happening at rapidly accelerated pace. And that's the frustration I feel partly with this debate. I think a lot of people are frustrated and we won't frustrate the (laughs) listeners. Now, post-election, you signalled, obviously after the defeat of the coalition, you signalled that you would be listening to women, because I think it was 
well, certainly a view among your colleagues, and I, from memory it was referenced in the post-campaign review that there was a significant departure of women in terms of voting for the coalition at the last election. And the reasons for that will be obviously multifactorial, but rather than me opine about that, I'm interested in you telling me where you were up to because you were going out to listen and to reflect. What have you learned? Well, since then, we've had the review that Jane Hume and Brian Lochnane put forward. It's gone through our Liberal Party state division. It's gone to all our federal division. It's gone to all our state divisions. So the work of encouraging more women into our party is well and truly underway. So I want to say that that's happened, that's happening. And I've met some incredible female leaders who've stepped up, Caroline DeRusso in Western Australia, in the last 12 months as president is one shining example. But there are many shining examples and those that are already in politics. And I want to also recognise Elizabeth Lee and the outstanding work that she's done in the ACT, Leo Fanocchiaro in the Northern Territory and many, many others. So rather than remember all the names that I need to, because these are indeed extraordinary women, if we look at women more generally, I think the tone of the debate has changed. And I did acknowledge that women particularly professional women, weren't happy with us at the last election. And I did say we needed to listen and I did say we needed to absolutely reflect what we heard in how we present ourselves at the next election. So I think the tone has changed. I think people have Sorry, heard... Just let me stop you. The tone, when you say the tone's changed, so what do you mean the tone's changed? I think people are recognising in us a party that isn't the same as the party that... Oh, I see. You're saying your tone has changed. And not just mine, but I think they've seen from Peter Dutton some of his lived experience being a policeman, the impact that family violence situations had on him as a very young man, talking about that and some of the measures that we've already talked about in our budgets on women's health have been really well received and we do a lot of work on women's health and mental health. So in terms of positioning ourselves to appeal to women, I would never describe women as one homogenous no, group. But sure. as I travel a country and wherever I go, I try to have a women's roundtable and I try to meet with professional women and I meet with a lot of small businesses, of course, and we have sometimes a formal conversation and then at the end I say, can everybody just tell me exactly what they're thinking? Mm. Just let me know. Just let me have it. Mm. We want to hear from you. And, of course, women are always very frank <laughs> when they're given the opportunity and sometimes when they're not. So I, that's what I mean when I feel like the tone of the conversation has changed. They're talking about, well, they're talking a lot about the NDIS actually. They're talking about the cost of living and they're the ones who manage the family budget the family happiness sometimes it feels like and particularly if you've got the stresses of children and elderly parents, they're the ones who are looking at an ever-diminishing amount to spend on the weekly grocery. So they're talking about cost of living. Even in the last six months, I've really seen that sort of sharpen up. They're talking about the cost of childcare, which is now outpacing their ability to pay. And I do meet many women who say, well, I'm not going to go back into work because of the cost of childcare. And women who are older, so I meet a lot of women in rural Australia who are in their 50s, have had marriage breakups, got very low superannuation balances. And and of course, they talk about their fears for their future. So um, in covering the spectrum, it's clear to me that it's not about inviting women into some Liberal Party sanctum or, or by, by the way, my branch meetings are very energetic affairs and we have a lot of feisty women in them. But I want to take the Liberal Party to where women are. I want to meet them where their needs are. I want to appeal to their aspirations. And I'm worried about, you know, many of their futures in terms of this crippling cost of living crisis and the fact that 
as we came out of COVID, we're all under a cloud. The cloud has lifted, but but maybe it hasn't. Mm -hmm. And so for many people, they don't feel they've got back to where they were and they feel they're going backwards. And young women and young men are worried that they won't own their own home. And somehow there's a lack of energy. And I want to support people who are feeling that sense of even dread about the future. And when I ask them about it, they just talk about cost, cost, cost. Mm -hmm. And being weighed down by worry and, you know, even, for example, if you've got a family that thought everything was going okay and then you hear that someone's taking on a second job, well, um, that suddenly throws everything into chaos in terms of just the balance around the family. Yep. And, I mean, we do, we spend a lot of time talking about the voice and I, and I appreciate that and it's important. But, you know, as soon as I leave here, uh, I don't think about that. I think about the woman who walked into my electorate office and said, here's my electricity bill. It's twice what it was before and since I got it, I haven't turned my heater on. Mm. And, you know, I think about the friends in my own circle or in my church who just quietly don't do the things they used to do or don't volunteer and are starting not to participate in the community as much as they were. So I see that through a female lens because women talk to women. Yeah, and I... I agree the community everyone's doing it tough and everyone's kind of head down in their batch of worries really <laughs> certainly yes certainly in 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 my world um yeah and and uh, I was talking about good women um of which I know that I could I could name any but today Zoe McKenzie who's a new member of this parliament held a forum in the theatre on young people being addicted to screens mm-hmm. and she had some really top psychologists and experts to talk about this phenomenon and it's really something that we have to think about for the future of women and she's leading an amazing piece of work because with teenage children in her house she's seen how the screens were the go-to place during COVID and your teacher was there and your entertainment was there and everything was there and now everything is still there and Mm. to listen is quite chilling to have this conversation. You know, these are issues we have to be across when we look at women's issues more broadly. We have to see what's happening to young people and, of course, the effect that has on the family home. Yeah, yeah. In in terms of that general dynamic that you're describing, uh, and, you know, I agree, uh, women are (laughs) very worried about their kids and screens and I want to come back to housing in a minute Mm. because I think that's some profitable territory we might be able to think about. Um, but I've been away. Listeners know I've been away uh, for the last six months. I've been dealing with some stuff. I've been very much head down in life. And I must confess, every time I looked up and re-engaged in the theatre where I've spent nearly 30 years of my life, I found the tone punishing and the conflict utterly repellent to the point where I just didn't want to tune in. Now, You're talking about Parliament? I'm talking about Parliament. And you've referenced Peter Dutton, obviously the leader, and you've indicated to me that women are getting more of a sense of him, getting more of a handle on him, right? And they're um, responding well to him. Yeah, well, that's interesting because obviously he's, look, I find Peter a very personable person. <laughs> he has a very established political brand, which is red meat, conflict-driven, I mean, that has been how he's presented himself his entire political career. Obviously, The Voice is another theatre of conflict. I'm just sort of referencing that broad phenomenon, right? Again, I'm not personalising it. It was just when I tuned in, it was like fingernails down 
a kind of chalkboard. So this is a ridiculous question, Susan, I'll just acknowledge it in advance. Asking the deputy leader of the party to reflect on the leader's strategy is obviously a stupid question, but it's a genuine one through the lens we're talking about, right? I think there would be women who would be centre-right in terms of their orientation, who would be looking at you folks, wanting to see if there's something there for them, who would take one listen to the sound of Peter Dutton in full flight and switch off entirely. But you're telling me that women are responding well to him. Well, it's our strategy, so I need to make that clear. We're very unified, very determined, of course, and very locked in behind our leadership, and it's our strategy. The other thing I would say when you talk about stereotypes and brands, you probably didn't use the word stereotype, and I I understand what you mean, is that we are all someone different from the person that the public sees, all of us. Yeah, sure. And, of course, the classic line is that you can't meet everyone, so your image does carry something. But I have been genuinely surprised by the number of people who've said to me, because I'm everywhere in the community meeting people who aren't normally our supporters, those that have met Peter or have had some sense of him through other than the Theatre of Parliament are very impressed. That's not everybody. Of course it's not. Everybody doesn't like me. But I often explain to people who give me the similar, not commentary, I think you're probably at one end of the spectrum of not liking what you're seeing, Uh, but people sometimes ask about this, oh, you know, you're all kind of having a go at each other, what happens afterwards, you know, do you you chat? And they say, yeah, of course we do, we're in the queue of getting coffee, we have a chat, we often know each other's issues, if there's something happening to someone on the other side that you may have been on a committee with and shared a friendship with, you know, you keep up with them, you send them a note when you know they've lost someone close to them. You know, it's it, you have to see it as theatre. You really do. Um, the, the animosity that people might imagine is there, in my experience, just really isn't. Mm. And it's important too to know that I know there's a view that if everyone just got on well in Parliament and had long constructive discussions wouldn't that be better? Well, no, it wouldn't because the Westminster system, which I am firmly a strong believer in, is about an opposition holding a government to account. And we want to change the country for the better. And we want to change the policies of this Labor government because we absolutely believe they're taking this country down a track that is very, very bad for people who want to realise their aspirations, live their fullest lives and be independent and at least as prosperous as the previous generation instead of feeling like they're less secure and less prosperous. So that's a fight. Never forget there's a fight to be had here and that fight often shows itself on the floor of the parliament because it's important that we have it. Of course. Some political scientists said once, I think, that, you know, parliamentary democracy is sort of rationalising conflict without resort to violence, right? That's That's what politics is about. It's about a battle of ideas. Now, speaking of a battle of ideas, you've given me the line. I don't mean that derisively, mm. but I'm just saying, you know, we we want to change the Labor government. We want to do different things. So I'm interested in the lead up to the election. Obviously, Anthony Albanese gave you guys a model of not of being quite policy light in the lead up to an election and yet winning a mandate for government. Are we likely to see 
a number of policies from you guys because there hasn't been much. Yes, we are. Peter's made that very clear. And we've got a process that is, if you like, a shadow ERC process, a development of policy and a scrupulous working up of ideas and their costings. And that's across every portfolio. And I'm part of that. And, and so that's when, being done with great rigour. When will when will we well, see that start to roll I'll out? give you the standard answer, Catherine, in due course. Because remember, it's <laughs> It's 2023. The election's not due in 2024. Yeah. It's actually due in 2025. So we will have prepared policies ready to respond to the nuances of the particular situation. And obviously we don't know what the government's going to do between now and then and we don't know what the economy is going to do. We know what it's predicted to do yeah. and we know that if the government takes us down this path of high inflation and a wrecking industrial relations policy that smashes small businesses and therefore communities. And I've heard the Energy Minister almost acknowledge that the targets are impossible to meet, but where is this trillion dollars of investment that will demand a return on capital coming from? And where are the industries that are going to produce our future if they are so despondent and folding? Because energy costs, the cost of doing business, the uh, the industrial relations legislation. I know we don't want to go down too many rabbit holes in mm. terms of individual things and that's not coming back till February next year, thank goodness. But it's an example of when I say this bad Labor government, I really mean it because there, there are no friends for this IR legislation. The minister stands there and normally a minister will read out quotes of, you know, all the organisations or individuals that think this is a good thing. There's no one. Well, There's no one at all. Possibly gig possibly. economy workers might might be well, friends of the legislation. But anyway, look, let's well, you not... Well, you could do a couple of things that are important around that, I agree. Um, industrial manslaughter and, uh, you know, uh, some work with the first responders, some legislation. Of course you could. You don't have to bury it in 700 pages of legislation and then use that as the only rationale for getting the rest of it through when you can't even explain it and it's crippling. The effect on business. Let's do a couple of things quickly. (laughs) (laughs) I detect in your show an appetite among certainly people younger, younger than you and I, for a serious policy on housing. We saw a recent contribution, one of your new recruits in the Senate used her first speech to float the idea of capping the amount of properties that could be negatively geared. I hope I haven't verbaled it there. Just don't have her exact words in front of me. I detect there might be some in your show who would support such things. So what are we likely to see on that front, housing? I mean, obviously, you're not going to give me the policy, sadly, because it's probably not done yet, but I'm just interested. What I am going to say is that we talk about it often and there's no one who doesn't come into our policy discussions on almost any topic that doesn't raise it because it's of huge concern Housing, to the young you people. Mean, well, to yeah. young people who, yeah. as I said, I'm worried are going or to consider gearing. Negative that they... <laughs> Well, just just they're, I mean, they, they're they not picking out one piece of a policy. They're simply saying, will I be able to afford to buy a house? And I think the answer to that should be, yes, you should be able to afford to buy a house. And the, the irony is we've got, I live in rural Australia, we've got a lot of land and people would say, what's going on there? You've got plenty of room. Why aren't you building these houses? So I'm not passing this to the states and I'm not passing it as a supply issue, but it mainly is a supply issue even though there are some things that the Commonwealth can do. But we've announced the ability of first home buyers, Peter's mentioned that in since the election, we, we mentioned it before the election too, to use some of their superannuation to invest in an asset that will appreciate faster than their superannuation. Mm-hmm. And the confidence, well, the lack of confidence young people have in super means that they actually like that policy. So that's something, and that's something we've already talked about. But we 
we have to find a way. If I talk to the Housing Industry Association and all the experts so-called in the field, they say that you have to act on supply and one of the things you can do is have a policy that supports the utilities going in to an area where blocks are just being developed or land is just being zoned and it's happening in quite a few areas. So they've come up with some practical ideas that for some reason the state governments aren't doing. This hodgepodge of a housing policy where the government has band-aided it with another $3 billion. I'm not saying $3 billion shouldn't be spent on housing. I'm saying for goodness sake it has to be well spent. But let's come back to you. (coughs) Negative gearing, yes or no? Well, negative gearing has been proven not necessarily to add to the supply or to take away from the supply of rental properties. So is that no? Well, it's neither, Catherine. It's neither. It's it's saying that you can't pick one aspect of a full housing policy mm. and say you would do something here if you're not looking at the whole picture. Yeah, sure. You have to look at the whole picture. And the whole picture is all about the supply of homes. It's all about building more homes. By the way, everything that's in a home is going up. The bricks, the glass, the timber the energy, the cost of building a home has gone through the roof and I've got builders in my electorate who've signed fixed contracts mm. that are actually going to the wall as a result of yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's a big issue. We know how suddenly those costs have just hit the building sector. So let's look at the practicality. To have more homes, you have to build more homes. To build more homes, you have to have areas that are ready for the home to be built. And it has to be an affordable home. What we're seeing is the costs that are being imposed, often by state governments, because there's so many levies that you have to give to the state government that the only type of house you can afford to build is a premium product and you still don't have an affordable home. Mm. So we're all incredibly frustrated by this. And I'm frustrated that in seeking to address this, the Prime Minister seems to have put money on the table to the states but not connected it to these activities. Hang on, we're talking about you. We're talking about you. So we're likely to see some sort of holistic housing policy at some point before the next election? I'm sure the whole of the coalition will be talking housing and I know that we will have more to say about it. Okay. Uh, Last question, the teal seats. It's sort of part of strategy listening. Uh, Obviously there was an issue with women in the teal seats as well. Have you written them off? Definitely not. The pathway back to government is through every single one of those teal seats and I found as I've spent more time in them that It's too glib to say people voted against us because of women. Mm. I'm not saying that might not have been a factor. No, 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 I know what you're saying. I think there are a lot of factors, but I think what the residents of the teal seats are doing is looking at their independent members and asking the question, what are you able to deliver? Um, What can you do as my representative to have an impact on, for example, the cost of childcare, the cost of energy, the cost of living, Mm. what influence can you have? And I think the answer probably would be not much at this point in time so you because think- we know that unless independents have a brutal balance of power and use it, they don't tend to achieve very much. So you think you think they're winnable, even with Peter Dutton as leader? Yes, I do. And I spend a lot of time in them. And I spend a lot of time talking to people who are genuine and frank and I ask them what they want to see. And when I talk about what our policy agenda is more broadly for them. And when I focus on their cost of living and explain, because it's not cost of living, is just three words, when I explain how the current government's actions on industrial relations, on energy, on prices and on not reducing overall government spending are actually having that direct impact, I think they're starting to see that. So we've, got, we've always got work to do. I'm not stepping back and saying 
we don't or the work is done, um, I will continue and others will continue to take it right up to them. Susan, thanks for your time. Thanks, Catherine. Well, thank you so much for listening, you guys. We really do appreciate it. Thank you to James Milsom, who is uh, the producer of this episode this week. Thank you to Molly Glassy, who is the EP of the episode this week. Thank you, of course, to you guys for listening. Get in touch, rate, review, send us feedback. You know the drill. We'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.